Hey everyone, it's Josh Rapoon, your host. I first met Amber Strong, now Makayao, 25 years ago in 1995, my first year as a teacher. I taught her in advanced place U.S. history. Even then, I knew she was a special person and a lifelong learner. Over the decades, I've kept track of Amber as she began her own teaching career here in Hawaii. I followed her as she worked with Dr. Tom Jackson to develop the Philosophy for Kids program, known as P4C. For a few years, I lost track of her whereabouts, but in the late fall of 2018, she popped onto my radar when I, with Ted Dintersmith, screened most likely to succeed at the University of Hawaii at Manoa, their College of Education, where Amber is a faculty member. Some weeks later, we met and had coffee. In that conversation, asking each other questions, we discovered that our family histories are remarkably intertwined. Since then, Amber and I have worked on a number of education projects together, so you can imagine how proud I am to bring you this episode. Amber Makayao, my former student, is now one of my teachers. I have learned so much about education and educator professional development since we reconnected. Thank you for listening to this podcast series. If you like it or love it, please give us a rating and write a review in the podcast store. Hey everybody, this is the What School Could Be in Hawaii podcast. I'm your host, Josh Rapun. This is another On the Road episode, and we're here at Hanahaoli School in beautiful Honolulu, in the, in the back of Honolulu, at the base of the Ko'olau Mountains. And I'm here with Amber Makayao, who I actually used to know as Amber Strong. Um, low those 25 years ago, Amber, when I actually had you as a student. Mm-hmm. So this is a particularly special moment. Welcome to the to the podcast. Thanks for having me. So Amber, I wanted to start with your bio so that people can get to know you a little bit as we work our way through this conversation. Um, so you, what, what was your, what were your early years like? Where did you go to elementary school? Where did you transition to middle school? What was that like? I attended Hanahooli School, the very grounds that we're sitting on here today, as a junior kindergartner all the way through sixth grade. And that portion of my education had a huge impact on my future as an educator. From Hanahooli, I moved to Punahou School in seventh grade, where I graduated in 1995. I'm coming up on my 25th anniversary of graduation. And from Punahou School, I ended up going to the University of California at Santa Cruz, which is a really progressive university. I think it was even more progressive at the time. Narrative evaluations, no grades. And for me, it felt like coming home to Hanahooli School. And after doing an undergraduate degree in psychology and education, I came back to Hawaii. I always knew that I wanted to live and work in Hawaii, and I knew I wanted to enter a career in education, and I felt like I needed to do that learning back home where I was going to be teaching. And so I returned back and uh, attended the Master's of Education and um, Teaching at the University of Hawaii at Manoa. Um, where I had the privilege of doing my student teaching at Kailua High School and ended up getting hired there in my first teaching job. And while I was teaching at Kailua High School, I began pursuing a PhD in curriculum studies that I also um, integrated into my teaching experience at Kailua. So that's a little bit of my 
educational background. So Hanahaoli is actually a super interesting school with a very interesting history. And it turns out you and I discovered about a year ago um, that there's some intersection of our lives with regard to Hanahaoli School. So how was Hanahaoli uh, founded? On what principles was it founded as a school? And what was your family connection to the school? Mm, okay, a lot of a lot of layers here to this question. Yeah. So Hanahaoli was founded 101 plus years ago in 1918, and it was founded by Sophie and George Cook, who were a Kama'aina family, and they were actually living on the island of Molokai. Uh, George was running Molokai Ranch, and um, Sophie was homeschooling all of their children. And George got interested in government and ended up getting elected to the Hawaii State Legislature, and the family had to move to Honolulu part-time. And when they moved to Honolulu, Sophie and George thought, oh, we should probably send our children to a formal education now. Uh, and they were looking around at schools and at options, and serendipitously at the same time, there was a woman who was traveling across the country from the Francis Parker School in Chicago. And she was a fourth grade teacher at the Francis Parker School. And Francis Parker was a contemporary of John Dewey. In fact, John Dewey, the famous progressive educator, claims that Francis Parker was the founder of progressive education. And Francis Parker had been a teacher and then a principal and then a superintendent in public schools. And towards the end of his life thought, I want to start an independent school of my own where I can do everything that I've always dreamed of in education. And he founded the Francis Parker School. So this woman, Goodwin Thorne Thompson, was a fourth grade teacher there. And she was traveling across the country giving talks on how children could learn how to read through storytelling rather than basal readers, which were the norm at the time where kids were memorizing sounds and letters. And she said if you gave kids a storytelling-rich environment, then the imagery that they would use while they were listening to stories would be the gateway to reading. And she's actually responsible for founding uh, in American public libraries the programs where kids can, parents can bring their kids in to listen to stories. So Sophie ends up attending this talk, hearing her, gets enraptured by this really novel approach to education, and walks up to her afterwards and said, I, I love this approach to teaching. I would really love my children to attend a school like this. And Goodwin Thorne Thompson said, well, why don't you start a school of your own? So Sophie and George worked with teachers at progressive schools in Chicago and New York and ended up founding Hanahaoli. And I believe there were something like 11 children in its inaugural year. And it was really founded on the principles of progressive educators at the time, um, really for education for the purpose of a democracy, for creating a better future society, and the idea that school life and home life should not be separate but integrated, and that school learning at school should mirror what learning looks like outside of the classroom. Uh, so they really worked on taking these progressive principles of children learning by doing, uh, teachers as scientists whose primary role is to study society and children and to create opportunities that are appropriate for children because most of the schools at the time were treating children like little adults and progressives really believed that children were children and you should craft experiences for them that were designed for children. So they worked together and founded this school that was founded on the the progressive ideals of the East Coast, but really integrated a sense of place of Hawaii, of incorporating Hawaiian language and culture. Um, all students took Japanese language in the beginning. Even the architecture really mirrored Hawaii's um, particular place. And here we are 100 years later in a school that was highly criticized as it, at its founding for being 
too playful and joyful and not enough rigor and children doing as they please to now really being revered as, well, perhaps this is the way that children really learn and there's a lot of lessons that we can gain from these progressives who've been doing this work for the past hundred years. So it turns out that your family and my family have a connection here because Sophie Cook and my mother, uh, Jean Engel Rapoon, were friends um, and they actually knew each other on Molokai. And um, we have, you and I have since learned that Sophie was partially responsible with a group of other people for the Rapoon family coming to Hawaii um, just about 100 years ago. And actually, I can tell you today, this is something I haven't told you before, that we finally figured out through some forensic research into um, ship manifests um, and other archives, we know the exact date that the Rapoons now are, are arrived in Honolulu. It's August 8th. Um, 1920. Wow. So we're planning a party. Uh-huh. <laughs> You're invited. Um, <laughs> and so it's it's really cool to think um, that these two things were sort of happening at the same time. Uh-huh. And also that my um, father and his brother, my uncle, attended Hanaholi. Um, and that would have been a little bit later, a few years later, I think in 1922 and 23, around mm-hmm. there. Mm-hmm. So it's very, very cool. So Amber, since then, Hanaholi has grown and and become still or has remained still sort of a progressive beacon in Honolulu. But in what ways has the school changed over time? Mm, so the school now has 210 students, uh, ages junior kindergarten through sixth grade, and really has maintained a lot of the structural elements that were key to progressive schools. It was really about living an ideal democracy rather than reading about it in books. And so there's a number of traditions and structures that are set up for the school to run like a mini democracy and the children take the lead in running it. And so I think that's remained the same. I think what's changed is um, what we're projecting. We've been doing a lot of work in this 101 year to really look at what futurists are writing about how the world might be in 2030. And really, the aims of progressive education is you're taking that those future projections and you're shaping the things that kids do in school. So for example, the integration of technology is huge. And I think what you'll see at Hanaha'oli is it's not just about kids using technology as tools, but really hearkening on that progressive idea of looking at the ethics of technology. Mm. And so there's a lot of work being done in terms of what is the role of technology in a democracy? Um, how did people use it to maintain a democracy? Uh, thinking about artificial intelligence. What is it like to live with machines? Do machines count as people? Do we give them the same value? How does that then change the decisions that we make as a society? So I think that that's one of the key components. The school's been doing a lot of serious reflection in regards to climate change uh, and thinking about are we, if our philosophy is learning by doing and living the way that we want kids to be in the world, are we modeling a sustainable school environment and wanting to make changes uh, in those areas? Another. Um, yeah. I want to return for a second to the artificial intelligence part. So, Amber, the other night I watched a two hour documentary. One of my favorite programs is called Frontline PBS. Mm-hmm. Um, and as a two hour documentary about artificial intelligence and where it's going, 
Um, and it, it told five stories, basically, of, of data, of the collection of data, of the way artificial intelligence uses data, learns from data. And some of the more concerning things that are happening around gathering up a personal data and using it to manipulate people and all of that. So my question around that is, it sounds to me like Hannah Haoli has decided that elementary school is not too early to begin to look at all of the issues related to technology. Absolutely not. I'm, I mean, I, what what has happened time and time again of this work that we're doing that's a bit cutting edge is previously, I think, you know, returning to that idea of childhood, people thought that we should be protecting children from these the woes of the world. Like climate change is another example of it, right? That's terrifying and people are getting climate anxiety, so perhaps we shouldn't be talking about with this with children. But I think the underlying philosophy is that children look at it in a different way and we should be addressing all of these things with children and really asking those big ethical questions about all of it because this is when they can start to internalize what their beliefs are about living with all of these things. So what are some of the ways that that happens here at the school? Like, so let's just take, for example, AI and the collection of data for the purposes of trying to get people to do this, that, or the other, either politically or in a market sense, in a consumer sense. How might that, what does that look and sound and feel like in an elementary school when you try to address issues like that? Yeah, well, there's a couple of stories that I want to share. Um, well, one is, you know, a lot of schools right now have maker spaces. And uh, at Hanaholi, our space is called the Collaborative Studio. And the whole idea is that we want to make sure that the projects kids are pursuing, that they're doing it in collaboration with others. So part of the agreement in this maker's sort of space is that kids work collectively with other children on projects. So if they're doing cold coding with robots or um, creating things or using the 3D printer, that they have a partner that they're thinking through the ideas with. And I think that's something that we want to be modeling, that um, when we're working on the brinks of innovation and new technologies, that we really need to be working collaboratively with other people so that we can have checks and balances of the decisions that we're making um, with technology. So I think we're trying to model that. Uh, Another interesting story that I'm thinking of is we actually looked into last year about bringing um, a Sony Ibo on campus. So Ibo is a, a dog, an artificial intelligence dog that Sony's created that many people, particularly in Japan, have adopted as pets. And we were exploring what if we, we have chickens on campus that the kids take care of. And we were exploring, well, what if we also had an Ibo that was like the school's pet Ibo and the kids could do journaling about what was it like to live with this artificial intelligence. And as we did more research into it, we found out that the Ibo actually collects all this facial data and information and that we weren't yet ready to have that conversation with parents of, are you comfortable with this machine collecting all of this information about your children and store and sharing it with Sony or whomever for the sake of them being able to live with this artificial intelligence. So we're still grappling, I think, with the ethics of what does this look like in an elementary setting. But I think uh, those two stories are can shed some light on the work that we've been doing. It's so interesting about collaboration. Uh, again, the other night I saw a short documentary it's a series called The Weekly that uh, the New York Times puts out. And um, they were interviewing and filming a team of scientists, or actually they weren't scientists, they were young entrepreneurs who were right on the edge of perfecting the technology that allows me to use your face 
and other people's words and to shape those words into your words so that what you're saying is actually not at all what you said before. You know, this is special facial technology that, and I was, I mean, what I was observing was a, a high amount of collaboration. But there were a couple of people clearly in the team who were getting very uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. And those are the kinds of breaks that you're talking about. So we have to train kids from a very early age to work together so that they can check and balance each other. Yeah, and another really interesting theme that I think has arisen out of all of this is this idea of consent. Mm. Uh, it's one of the major themes that comes out. Um, all the children take a digital citizenship course that's really focused on digital citizenship in a democracy. And this idea of consent is huge in this course. And so as you're talking about this facial recognition and putting people's words in people's mouth, we're trying to get kids as early as kindergarten to really understand this idea of consent and all the things that I'm filming and producing and manipulating with machines are really being done with real humans that have feelings and you need to empathize with them and be able to have this consent conversation with them um, as you're doing all of this work. So that's another strand that's kind of woven through the work that we're doing here. You know, it's, it's interesting because the progressive era that the early 1900s when these sorts of schools were formed was an, another era of really technological innovation. I mean, the Model T was invented, all this new communication, and so the progressives were really struggling during that era of what does it mean to be human in light of all of this technology. And I think that's what you'll notice is a little bit different on campus here is we have all the technology and we're, we want kids to use it as tools, but we also want them to be reminded of what does it mean to be human and how does this use of technology alter our feelings about what it means to be human and that's where arts are integrated and music and, and things like that. So I think it's this interesting take on yes we want kids to be comfortable with the tools but we're more interested in the, the ethical components and how it's shaping the future of our society. So staying connected to that idea but going back in your history to the moment when you met Dr. Tom Jackson here yeah. in Honolulu um, and, and became exposed to and then continued to work with something called P4C or Philosophy for Kids. Mm -hmm. um, so what was that like? When did that happen and what do you remember about that and then how did the arc of your life change as a result of that? Well, it's interesting. While I was in California at the University of California, Santa Cruz, I got introduced to the idea, idea of doing research and education and fell in love with it, but really knew that I needed to teach in order to study education. And that was my decision, why I made the decision to come back and get a master's in um, education and teaching. And also, the part of the backstory is at UC Santa Cruz, I was really... Um, the social justice angle of the purpose of schools was really infused with me, which again resonated with my time here at Hanahooli, right? That you use schools to maintain all the things that we like about society and then as agents of change. And so I entered the master's program at UH Manoa and I had these um, higher beliefs about what I wanted to use education for in terms of creating a more socially just society. And I started doing a lot of reading in my education courses about theoretically what that might look like. But I didn't have actual strategies for bringing that alive in my classroom. And I ended up taking Tom Jackson's 
uh, Intro to Philosophy for Children course at the suggestion of my mother because my brother attended Asset School and Assets had a mentorship program and they had paired my brother with Tom Jackson. And so in high school, my brother was going around and doing philosophy with children with Tom. My mom said, there's this guy doing philosophy. I think he might like this course. And as soon as I took it, everything clicked of here's an actual pedagogical structure and strategies for translating all of my theoretical beliefs about education into a classroom practice, which was ideal for me at the time because I was teaching in the DOE and radically wanting to change things and not knowing how. And this gave me tools for creating a more socially just progressive classroom in my classroom that then could spread out from the bottom up to the rest of the school. So what exactly is P4C for those who have never known about it, never heard about it, and have never seen it in action? Okay, well, Philosophy for Children is an approach to teaching and learning that was founded in the late 1960s by an academic philosopher named Matthew Lippmann. He had children, or not children, young adults in college who he didn't think thought as well as they should or cared as much as they should for life in a democratic society. And he believed that if you incorporated the activity of philosophy into the K-12 setting, it would prepare kids for life in a democratic society. And so since then, uh, centers have evolved around the world that practice philosophy for children. It's a worldwide movement. Um, you can go to Brazil, the UK, France, Canada, you name it, Japan, China, and there's centers for philosophy for children. And there's one here at the University of Hawaii called the Uihiro Academy for Philosophy and Ethics in Education. And essentially, what P4C is, is it's built around the conceptual framework of community and then inquiry the activity of philosophy and reflection. And from there, there's a number of strategies for bringing those to life. So for example, with students and teachers, we talk about creating intellectually safe classrooms, that classrooms should be physically safe and emotionally safe, but intellectually safe as well. Like, I should be able to ask any question or state any point of view as long as I'm being respectful to everybody in the classroom. We also then make a tool called a community ball and it's a tool for mediating turn-taking in the classroom. So it takes power away from the teacher, and instead the kids facilitate their inquiry and their thinking with one another. What is the community ball? It's a yarn ball that's made by students and teachers on the first day of class by winding yarn around a, a hollow tube, and they answer questions about themselves and then questions that start to stimulate their thinking about what they're going to be talking about for the rest of the year in the class. So it's a it's a ball and the rules are only the person with the ball is the speaker the person with the ball chooses who speaks next and you always have the right to pass and say you need more time to think and so ideally the classroom is set up in a circle which is ideal for inquiry and the students use the ball to mediate their dialogue and thinking and reflection with one another we also teach kids something called the good thinkers toolkit so while I was learning to become a teacher, again, I'm doing all this reading about, you should be doing critical thinking and challenging kids to think well, well, what does that really look like? And then I took P4C and Tom had developed um, RayTech, which there is seven letters of the toolkit and they, it comes out of formal logic from philosophy, but you're essentially teaching kids about how to ask, what do you mean by that? Clarifying questions, um, ask and look for reasons, identify assumptions, how to make inferences, how to question is what's being said true and what are the implications, and then how to use examples and counterexamples to either, either prove or disprove claims. And it becomes this common language that teachers and students use to both ask questions and to think with one another in the classroom. And then we have a hallmark strategy called plain vanilla, which is a structure for setting dialogue, setting up dialogue-based inquiry, 
where we have some sort of stimulus. We've either read something, we went on a learning trip, saw a video, and every child in the classroom generates a question that they would like to think and talk about with the rest of the group. They then share their questions out loud. Everybody in the room gets two votes. They place their votes, and the question with the most votes becomes the focus of the inquiry. And from there, we use the community ball to think about that question together. And at the end of the inquiry, we reflect on how are we doing as a community? Was I listening? Is it intellectually safe? Um, am I who participated? And then how was our inquiry? Did I use the Good Thinkers Toolkit to scratch beneath the surface? Um, was it focused? Um, and I added on another element when I was teaching ethnic studies. Did it take on some forms of ho'oponopono? Were we actually resolving our issues that we have as a community or perhaps as a democracy through the dialogue that we have with one another? So. You can see it's got all those elements of those early progressives and that philosophy of teaching, and then here's some actual specific strategies. It, it sort of strikes me as a, um, as a sort of bill of rights for inquiry, if you will, in a sense. It, I mean, because we enjoy liberty, and liberty means I can do what I want to do, but how do I relate to you when we both have liberty? And so there has to be something that mediates liberty and it sounds like this philosophy for children approach mediates that a little bit. It creates a construct within which you can go deep in inquiry and work and work collaboratively together to learn. Yeah, it's that it's that tension between individuality and living in groups, which is I think we see that tension arise and rear its ugly head every day that we're living with others. And this is really giving kids as early as kindergartners tools for mediating that tension and, and keeping a balance between I'm an individual, it's important for me to be an individual, I bring unique gifts to this world and my perspective is important. And at the same time, it's really important that I understand the thoughts of others and, and learn to modify my beliefs if it means that we're gonna be able to live in harmony with one another. It's super interesting because um, uh, right in the middle of the 2000s, 2005, 2006, I was teaching at La Pietra Hawaii School for Girls. And in fact, your mother was teaching art in the, in the deck below me um, at the bottom end of campus. So these family connections are just so funny. Um, and I remember that I was really struggling to figure out exactly how to build that kind of environment in my classroom, that I had departed from the cliche term sage on the stage and that I was working to have a more inquiry-based classroom. And I remember that P4C suddenly popped onto my radar screen as I was in the middle of my struggle. I hadn't heard of it at that point. And so I invited Dr. Tom to come on campus and we did a, a PD session with the faculty. And I remember very clearly that when it was over, it was very clear that about half the faculty loved the idea of the P4C construct, mm -hmm. and the other half had recoiled in horror. Mm -hmm. it, and you could tell why they were recoiling in horror, because of the way that they run their classrooms and the way that they see their role in the classroom. Mm -hmm. um, and so it was very interesting to see that. And it, it, so it made a little bit of headway on campus, but I'm sure that's been your experience yeah. as you've moved it forward. Yeah, well, I mean, Part of the underlying philosophy is how do you how do kids learn how to think if you never give them an opportunity to think? And so it's a bit terrifying for teachers because you're turning the classroom over to kids and then you're using these tools to help bolster their thinking, but it's really helping them develop as thinkers. And for a lot of teachers, it's uncomfortable because they themselves have may have not had many opportunities to experience thinking like that. And so 
we've done a lot of work in addition to having this conceptual framework and the strategies to really look at, well, what are successful teachers who use this? What do they look like? And um, we call this the philosopher's pedagogy, and there's six commitments. But the first commitment is that you're, you're willing to live the examined life yourself. And so you're willing to walk into that classroom and say, I do have a set of beliefs and things that I know about, but I'm willing to suspend that in the idea that my students might challenge my thinking and, and give me opportunities to think differently. Mm -hmm. So that's really the first commitment. The other is really looking at content as not only the things that we have in books and on the computer, but as the experience and the beliefs of children that walk in the classroom. The third is to see uh, teaching as a collaborative endeavor between teachers and students. Um, to make philosophy the uh, general theory of education. This is what John Dewey wrote, I believe it's chapter five in Democracy and Education, that really philosophy is at the heart of a liberal democracy, of people learning how to think and care about their thinking and care about one another and ask these big questions. Um, that we have strategies for enacting this in our classrooms. And then the last commitment is that you're willing to challenge contemporary measures of assessment and really look at the thinking that we're doing together as, as true learning, and sometimes that's really hard, like art, to assess and give a number to. Right. So we're going to jump forward a little bit here and talk about you joining the faculty at the University of Hawaii okay. at Manoa College of Education. So how did that play out? How did that come to be? Well, we'd been doing this work with Philosophy for Children. I was at Kailua High School for over 10 years, and um, my main interest was using Philosophy for Children to teach ethnic studies. Uh, Kailua High School is actually the first public high school in the country to require ethnic studies for graduation. And our version of ethnic studies was having more of this community of inquiry approach to teaching ethnic studies. And um, I was teaching along with my colleague, Chad Miller. and. He and I, in addition to practicing philosophy for children in our own classroom, uh, then had the opportunity to teach other teachers at the school about it. Teachers started asking, well, what are the kids doing in your classroom that they enjoy so much? And how come your kids' test scores are really high, but it doesn't look like you're doing test prep in there? And from there, we started to, from the bottom up, build a movement at Kailua High School of a critical mass of teachers doing philosophy for children, and actually ended up gaining a number of external rewards or recognition for it. Chad became the Hawaii State Teacher of the Year. Uh, I won an award from Teaching Tolerance. It kind of all culminated with the Dalai Lama visiting Kailua High School, which was incredible, and we did an inquiry with him around questions that the kids generated. Wow, that must have been amazing. It was. Incredible. That's yeah. for another time. Yeah. Um, but really, we're gaining a lot of recognition. And part of this caught the eye of a Japanese foundation, the Uehiro Foundation in Japan. So after World War II, ethics education was made a requirement for all children in Japan, K-12. And this foundation was really looking for more constructivist ways of having ethics education. Instead of everybody sitting in a row and being like, today's values, honesty, memorize the definition of honesty. They wanted kids sitting in circles talking about what does it mean to be honest. And um, the secretary general of the foundation met Tom Jackson at the University of Hawaii and then started visiting schools here. And like I said, through this recognition, funded a academy at the University of Hawaii for philosophy for children under the premise that we would grow philosophy for children here in Hawaii so that we could bring teachers from Japan to visit our model schools and see philosophy for children happening here. And then we would bring teachers in the DOE 
who are practicing philosophy for children to Japan to then teach teachers in Japan. And through the funding of that academy is how I moved from Kailua High School to the University of Hawaii. A position opened up uh, for me to do curriculum and research related to philosophy for children. So a question about the enduring nature of these kinds of programs like philosophy for kids. And so just I have quick... to interrupt you because Tom yeah. would say P for C is not a program. Mm. He really likes to not call it a program. What do, what do we need to call it? I mean, that's why we've started calling it an approach to teaching an and approach. learning. Yeah. yeah. So um, this podcast is inspired by a book, What School Could Be, written by Ted Dindersmith, who's also the producer of the film Most Likely to Succeed. And Ted's been to Hawaii a bunch of times, 12 times. And one of the schools that I took him to on Maui, uh, Pomaikai Elementary, mm -hmm. is an arts-infused school. And it was a remarkable conversation that we had with faculty members there who were working really hard to develop a shared leadership model, partly because they wanted to ensure that the arts-infused school culture would survive the coming and going of various principals mm -hmm. who might or might not take testing more seriously than the last person and might begin to make cuts or things like that. So what's the, is P4C, does it have that enduring um, kind of quality to that, that it, that it survives in a school, it, it becomes embedded as an approach in a school? Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, we've done a bunch of research on this, on what makes P4C stick. And I, again, want to emphasize that in Hawaii, the philosophy for children movement has really been a teacher-led movement. In other parts of the world, it relies on an academic philosopher coming in the room and supporting teachers as they do this. And we really hold the belief that everybody's a philosopher and um, we want to support teachers in doing this. And so we started to study our model schools, which are Waikiki Elementary, uh, Waimanalo Elementary and Intermediate, Kailua High School, now Ka'elepulu Elementary and Sunset Beach Elementary. And we were studying the schools and thinking about, well, what made it stick at this school and have such longevity? And what we found is this three-part model. And we found that there had to be some sort of educative experience. So teachers get exposed to P4C either through a workshop or they take a course at the University of Hawaii. That's the first part. The second part is that we have somebody called a philosopher in residence. Mm. And the philosopher in residence um, started out as being a faculty member from the Uihiro Academy that would go into schools and support teachers as they did this work. And not that they would lead it, but they would sit alongside teachers, be another thinker in the room, and then be able to reflect with teachers after their sessions, and also give teachers the support to take risks and do innovative things that might be challenging for them. So we, have we had the educative experience, a philosopher in residence, and then the third component was that the teachers themselves needed to have a professional community of inquiry where they did P4C themselves around topics and issues of their interest that they were struggling with. And usually the philosopher in residence would lead those sessions. And we found in schools that had those three components, the educative experience, the philosopher in residence, and a professional community of inquiry, that P4C flourishes. And you can see, absent from that, is that you need to have a principal that's saying that this is a program that we need to do, or any sort of outside 
entity deeming that this is something we're a P for C school. It really comes from uh, from the teachers wanting this and then us providing the supports for making it happen. And in that way, leadership and initiatives can change and the P for C endures. Mm, super interesting. Hey, Amber, we're going to take a short break. And when we come back, we're going to talk about your return to Hanaholi School and some of the programs that you guys are doing here. So stay with us, everybody. We'll be right back. Hi, I'm Tyler Kern from MarketScale. We're excited at the arrival of a new podcast series out of Hawaii titled, What School Could Be in Hawaii. MarketScale is thrilled to be partnering with Josh Rapoon on this project and can't wait to hear the insight and thought leadership he brings to EdTech. If you're enjoying this podcast, you can hear it and others over at marketscale.com. You click on industries at the top of the page and then scroll down to EdTech. Hope to see you there. Hey, everybody. We're back. This is the What School Could Be in Hawaii podcast, the another on-the-road edition. And we're here with Amber Makayao at Hanahaole School. So, Amber, eventually, over time, you returned to Hanahaole. And you're now working for their professional development center. You're, you're the director. Um, and I'm super struck by what's happening here because... In a lot of schools, you might have professional development or a professional development center that's focused on the faculty at that school. But your mission, your center's mission, is to work with teachers, public, private, and charter across the entire spectrum in Hawaii. So um, how did you come back here? What, what was that process like that brought you back to Hanahaole? Well, Josh, I think that this has been part of the story of my professional career, that it's not been planned ahead, but I'm, I more follow interesting leads and invitations that resonate with the work that I'm doing. And I, I always think of it like as a, a, you know, the pointillist, like a Seurat painting that has all the little dots. And when you stand back, you see how it all fits together. So I didn't imagine myself being here back at Hanahaoli School, but two years ago, uh, the former director, Alila Levinson, uh, left the Professional Development Center to become a dean at Punahou School in the elementary school. And I got an email then from now head of school, Leah Wu, that said, hey, we want to have a conversation with you about the Professional Development Center. And they shared with me, I thought they just were wanted to pick my brain about things um, at the PDC. And they shared with me, well, this position has opened up and we thought that you'd be a great person uh, to come run the Professional Development Center here because of your history with the school and then the work that you've been doing over the years in education. And I hemmed and hawed over it and I thought, well, I can't leave UH Manoa and all the work that I've been doing there. And luckily, Leah was like, well, let's explore other options. What if this was a partnership between the University of Hawaii and Hanahaoli School? So I actually still work for the University of Hawaii in the College of Education. That's my tenure home. And Hanahaoli School buys out part of my time to run their professional development center. And I think it's actually a beautiful iteration of this idea that was formed over nine years ago to have this public facing arm of the school that's doing professional development, like you said, for public, private, and charter school teachers, um, that it is a collaboration with the College of Education. It's, it's like Dewey's original idea for the lab school, which only lasted about nine years, but here we are living mm -hmm. it today. So you, when you and I got together to work on a particular project, which I'll describe in a second, you were actually just at the very beginning of that process of coming back to Hanahaole, correct? Yeah. Yep. That was uh, last April. 
um, that we did that. So you were you were about a year into returning to Hanau. Right, I started point. here the 2018-19 school year. So this right. is now my second year. Right. So um, for those listeners out there, go ahead. Well, I was going to say, and I actually... I don't know if I reached out to you or I ran into you at Kahala Mall and I said, Josh, I'm in this new position at Hanaholi School. I'd, I want to think through some ideas about it. And that's when we got reconnected with one another. So I was really returning to my teacher and saying, hey, help me out. There's a new opportunity here. And at the same time, I was starting to find out about my family's history and about how we got to Hawaii and our connection to Hanaholi School. So that it moved forward from there. So what you and I worked around, and this is going to be a little strange for the listeners because this is actually a project that we both worked on. So I think we have to slip out of interview mode and just talk about this. Okay. So you and I worked on a project that culminated April 2nd and 3rd of this year mm -hmm. where we brought together, I think it was pretty close to 70 professional development providers. Um, and we were working on a, on a theory that these professional development providers here in Hawaii largely didn't know each other and that there was going to be some benefit to getting them in the same room. Mm -hmm. So what was that benefit that we were working on? This is where it gets weird, right? I'm asking you, well, what, what was yeah. it? Yeah, we wanted them to be together. Well, you're reminding me of the question that I had. I was curious if that there was any one particular place that teachers in Hawaii could go to to learn about professional 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 development providers here in the state of Hawaii. Right. And you didn't think that there was. And there so, was no website. There was no clearinghouse. There was nowhere that you would see them all sort of in the same place. So I think that's what this ahakuka developed out of was this desire to have a place for educators to know about all these wonderful PD providers here in Hawaii with the idea that there is fantastic things happening here in Hawaii and that we would like people to be connected with all of those resources that they have locally. So to give a specific example, let's say that you were an educator in Hawaii and that you had done something like PBL Works. Um, or, or Kupuho Academy, which are both focused on, on project-based learning and inquiry. Um, you, you maybe you, as an educator, you had done that, but you were super interested in developing some sort of arts integration into your, into your work. Um, what you might not have known is that there's something called the Estria Foundation here in Hawaii. So the Estria Foundation actually focuses on developing teachers as public artists or teachers and students. So they help facilitate the development of public art as done by teachers and students. So they train teachers to go through these kinds of approaches to um, public art. And PBL Works and Estria Foundation had no idea about each other. And we thought that it would be a good idea if they touched each other, that there would be a spark in some way that they might incorporate with each other. Yeah, I think we were really aiming to, A, bring all these PD providers together to know one another so that we don't, it's not an air of competition that we're competing for clients, but we're really finding our unique niches that we do as professional, professional development providers. I don't know why that word is so hard. <laughs> PD providers. And then we wanted to create a resource for teachers to get to know what was available. So it really had this multiple perspectives to it. And it was really about building our capacity. So how could we get stronger together? And so over the course of developing that two-day program that we did together with our EPIC team of volunteers from public, private, and charter schools who pitched in to help make it work, 
I recall uh, coming across my radar screen, one of the workshops that your center was working on around climate change. And I, I remember it was an arresting moment. It was in the form of, a, of an email newsletter that I, was, that I had subscribed to. And you were describing a workshop that you were going to put on that addressed directly teaching climate change, no matter what subject area you might be in. And, and then it was at that point, Amber, that I started to realize that there was almost like a, a menu's not the right word, but there was going to be a list of these different approaches, um, different kinds of PD workshops that were gonna be niches for people who were interested in certain areas. Um, so how did that happen? How did you guys come to that sort of, here's what we're gonna do as a, as a center to help develop professional development in Hawaii. Right, so I think originally the Hanaholi School Professional Development Center was set up so that people could learn about the progressive work that was being done here at Hanaholi. And its flagship uh, program is a thematic institute that Dr. Robert G. Peters, former head of school at Hanaholi, runs each summer in collaboration with all of the teachers here. So it's teaching teachers how to create integrated interdisciplinary thematic units for their classrooms and giving them real examples of that. And I think that was the original idea. And when I stepped on board, based on my experience with all of these organizations that I've had the pleasure of working with over the past 20 years, especially with my emphasis being social studies, in addition to having Hanaoli teachers teaching teachers, I really wanted to envision the Professional Development Center as a place where community organizations could come and partner here mm. and reach a broader audience. So for example, the climate change workshop that you're referring to was actually a collaboration with the Institute for Climate and Peace. And they had never really done a teacher-facing workshop. And so what we were able to do is to bring in their expertise in teaching about climate change and the intersection of climate change and peace, and also working with futurists and then integrating that with this education component of what sort of experiences do teachers need to make sense of this and have strategies that they can use in their classrooms. And so in that way, a number of our current programming is with partner organizations that have these really great ideas but may not have the reach and audience that we have here at the Professional Development Center. And we can, create, we can give them both the facilities and the marketing to be able to get the good work that they're doing in the community out to more educators. So what's another example besides climate change of a workshop that you're either working on or have already carried out already? Well, um, another example that was really cool last semester is we did a public talk on teaching the Chinese Exclusion Act in current times and its relevance to today. And that was actually a collaboration with the Chinese Community Action Coalition in Chinatown. Uh, there were uh, a number of scholars uh, that are a part of that organization and they helped show a film about the Chinese Exclusion Act and then give commentary about its relevant and relevance in current times. So that's, you know, really another unlikely marriage of a, an elementary school and this Chinese Community Action Coalition coming together to help um, give this social justice message out to educators. Uh, another set of programming that we're currently working on is we've gotten a large grant from Jana and Howard Wolf to do social justice education here in Hawaii. And we have a number of initiatives that have come out of that. One is uh, last semester we did a number of workshops for early childhood educators looking at anti-bias education and starting as young as preschool and looking at um, anti-bias work. And that was led by Terry Locke at the University of Hawaii at Manoa. 
We're next semester bringing uh, Cody Miller, who I've known from Teaching Tolerance for years, to do a workshop and a public talk related to the gender spectrum and teaching LGBTQ rights in schools and setting up more inclusive school environments. Um, another thing that spawned out of the, the early childhood workshop was the desire of all the people that were at the workshop to have continued dialogue. So we've now set up a quarterly dialogue about our commitment to equity that it's, gonna, it's free, it's potluck, and it's people that want to talk about these issues that they're dealing with in, in schools related to equity and bias and social justice. So those are just a couple of things. Mm -hmm. I'm also really excited as a former social studies teacher that in May, we're having a public talk called Let's Talk About Teaching the Election. So it's designed to give teachers and educators in schools tools for tackling the presidential election that we have coming up next fall. So there'll be a talk. Um, Colin Moore from the Political Science Department at UH Manoa is going to talk about the role of media in elections. Uh, Representative Amy Peruso is going to talk about youth movements uh, in a democracy. And then Calhi Davis from the King Kamehameha the Fifth Judiciary Center is going to talk about voter suppression, and then we'll have a team of teachers from Hanholi School talk about how we're going to teach the election in, in 2020. So that's just a sample of some of the programming that's coming up, but really the idea is that the programming has to be aligned to our 100-year-old progressive mission, and um, it's we really want a partnership. We want to partner with community organizations that are doing this work that perhaps other organizations are not providing PD on. I'm super struck, Amber, by the thought that in addition to all of the work that you're doing to help develop teachers, you're also developing something else, which is a reasonable and democratic and a rational and reasonable and democratic conversation amongst public, private, and charter school educators, where often in other states, people have their weapons drawn and are shooting at each other. Um, because of long-standing antag antagonisms between these different sectors, that here in Hawaii we've got a, w a wonderfully civil and constructive conversation amongst all, and you're making a contribution to that by having them all coming to, right? It's open to everybody. Yeah, I mean, that's the coolest thing. Is for so many years I've done professional development in the DOE, um, primarily around social studies, and it's been wonderful, but what I've observed over the past two years is to have public-private charter sitting side by side, grappling with the same issues, hearing about particular issues that may be happening in different sectors and then working together to collaborate has just been so rewarding. And I think it's, I mean, this is part of my belief about a constructivist approach to education. Just hearing the other people's questions and ideas really forces you to push the envelope on the work that you're doing in your particular context. And then perhaps leave with a bit of gratitude for the context that you're teaching in, but really solidifying this idea that we're all in this together in Hawaii. And it, it makes us stronger to collaborate and partner with one another. So I think the biggest rewards is when I see teachers leaving the workshop with new friends and, and peers and collaborators that they can, they can work with to actually create exciting new opportunities for kids. Right. So Amber, I want to finish this conversation by returning to a question that I've asked pretty much everybody that has been through this podcast series. Um, and it, it centers around Ted's book, What School Could Be, and around the question, what could school be? And I feel like this whole conversation has been an answer to that question mm -hmm. in many ways. Um, but I just want to return to it directly and ask you, what could school be for us here in Hawaii and also nationally and globally? I mean, it's such a hard question because I honestly believe that 
school should be what it should be and we should be living that and that is that every person gets to realize who they are as a unique important individual and they learn to care deeply about others and care deeply about this world that we're living in and that we're not talking about it or just talking about it or reading about it in books we're living it with one another and so when i think about what school should be school should be living an ideal reality and the idea is that we're giving kids the opportunity to experience that ideal reality so that when they go out into the world and it doesn't look like what it might have looked like in schools that they have the fortitude to draw from that experience and create that new reality so i'm a firm believer in creating idealistic utopic experiences for kids in schools so they can then go create that and make that our new world that's fabulous Amber Makayao at Hanahaole School, thank you so much for this conversation today. Thank you, Josh. It's been special.